Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Welcome back, future doctors. As always, it's a pleasure to have you joining us for another episode here on the Future Minority Doctor podcast. Thank you for anyone who donated to our recent fundraising drive. We really appreciate your support. And we just love being able to share all of this content with you. It's currently May, and we are rapidly approaching the next application cycle for medical school. If you're at a certain stage in your pre-med journey, you might be wondering, Am I ready to apply to medical school? Even if you're not quite at that stage, you might still be wondering, how will I know when I'm ready to apply to medical school? Now, these are big questions because the application process is lengthy and it's expensive. So you want to make sure that you really have a decent chance of getting in before you go through all of that effort and all of that expense. I personally remember how nerve-wracking and expensive the whole application experience was. There was a lot of research and planning and worrying and waiting involved. What do you remember about the experience, Dr. Zulma? The same exact thing that you just said. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I actually remembered well, at that point when I was doing the application, I was actually working as a mental health counselor full-time to help finance my application process. And I still had to use credit cards, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, <of> course. <laughs> and, and I was living with my parents, too. And I remember having to figure out how many schools I would be able to afford to apply to and then how I would finance those trips and the hotels in case I was asked to interview. I think I ended up narrowing it down, if I recall correctly, to about 12 medical schools since I knew that was all I could afford. And I picked the medical schools and cities in which I had friends that lived there. So that was, that way I would just be able to crash at their place for their interviews, which would save me money. Uh-huh. And fortunately, the company that I was working for as a mental health counselor, they were very supportive and flexible. So they allowed, you know, they gave me that flexibility and time off so that way I could travel. But man, that year was so stressful. And I remember by the end, I had interview fatigue. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then I also remember I was really sick for one interview. I mean, I think I had a fever and it was in New York and I live in California. And I, you know, I knew I was not in a state to travel, but I still went just because I was so scared of missing out on the opportunity. And I was fearful that they maybe wouldn't reschedule me or if it was too late, then I would miss out. But man, it was rough, but I made it through that interview. Okay. Uh (laughs) But it was definitely a very stressful year of just not knowing what your future that you couldn't plan ahead because you didn't know what your future held. Yeah, I I mean, uh, let me emphasize, like applying to medical school is not like just applying to a job. You don't just fill out an application, turn it in and wait to hear back. Like in a way you do, but it's a really long application. It requires so many components. You have to review it over and over and over to just get it as good as you can. You have to ask for letters of recommendation. You have to submit your MCAT scores, your transcripts. You have to do secondary applications if you get those and interviews. And it's a whole year long process Mm -hmm. for most people. So it's a stressful experience. And I remember, you know, just worrying about how am I going to pay all of these application fees? How am I going to afford the plane tickets and the accommodations? 
my husband and I, we were applying to med school and grad school at the same time. So we had to apply to like 20 programs in order to increase our chances of getting in. And luckily, his parents had friends throughout the country, and we were able to stay with people that they knew and have free accommodations. But still, this is a stressful process. And so we really wanted to do this episode because we want to help you figure out if you're really ready to go through this process before you jump into it. Because if you jump into it blind, you might very well be disappointed. And we don't want that for anyone. So today we'll be reviewing some general guidelines to help you determine if you are ready to apply to medical school. So to start, let's review a little bit about the application process itself, just the basics. First, the timeline. Application systems usually open up around early May, and they start accepting submissions around early June. Medical schools generally process the applications during the summer months, and then interview season usually begins in the late summer and goes through the fall, and even during early winter. Each school has a different application deadline, but most hard deadlines for applications are somewhere between September and November. However, it is well known that in general, it's wise to apply as early in the cycle as you can. If you can get your application in by June or July, then do it. Submitting your application later than about August can hurt your chances of getting interviews at some schools. If you really need to apply late because of a unique situation, though, you still can. There are students who apply late in the cycle and still get acceptances. But in general, if at all possible, the earlier the better. Let's briefly touch on the different application systems. So I mentioned it's a complicated process, and what makes it even more complicated is that there are different systems for applying to different types of schools. So there's the American Medical College Admission System, or AMCAS, which is for the allopathic medical schools where you get an MD. There's also, um, interestingly, Texas has its own application system for MD schools or allopathic medical schools. That's called the Texas Medical and Dental School Application Services or TMD-SAS. And then there's also for the DO schools, which is the osteopathic medical schools where you get a DO, the American Association of Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine Application System, or AACOMAS. So there are these three different systems, and we've discussed it in prior episodes. Deciding which one is right for you, that's a whole different question. But you want to decide, you know, what type of medical school you're applying to, and the locations in order to determine which of these systems you're going to use. Some people just apply to MD schools, and that's fine. Some people just apply to DO schools, and that's fine. Some people choose to do both in order to increase their chances of getting into medical school, and that's fine. That decision is totally up to you based on your situation. Each of these systems has slightly different application requirements and deadlines, however, so make sure that you review each of the systems so you will know exactly what is required for each of those. So now let's dive into some questions that you need to ask yourself to decide whether you will become a competitive applicant for medical school. And I have six questions that you need to ask yourself. So question number one is, are you absolutely sure that you want to become a doctor? And can you explain why? One of the most important parts of your application will be the personal statement, which is also called the personal essay or the personal comments section. This is your opportunity to explain as clearly as you possibly can why you want to become a doctor. 
Why do you want to spend the next seven to 10 years of your life getting into a lot of debt in order to pursue medical school and training? What is it specifically about becoming a doctor that you find appealing? And unfortunately, it's usually not enough to say that you want to become a doctor because you want to help people. There are a million ways to help people besides becoming a doctor. You could become a teacher. You could become a nurse. You could become a janitor. Those are all helping people, right? But you have to really think about why are all of these other ways not good enough for you, but being a doctor is your goal. And you may have to dig deep and be really honest with yourself when trying to answer this question. Maybe you've had a personal or family experience with illness or with death. Maybe you've done research in a lab that sparked an interest in helping people in a very specific way. Maybe you lacked access to healthcare as a child and you want to be part of a movement to increase access to healthcare for your community. That last reason was actually a big part of my why in applying to medical school. I grew up without being able to see a doctor until I was a teenager. And so when I got to college and I learned more about social inequities in the healthcare system, it lit a fire inside of me and I wanted to be someone who could help to change that system. So I articulated that within my personal statement and in my application as a whole. What about you, Dr. Z? What was your why when it came to applying to medical school? Yeah, very similar to you, Dr. Marina. I I wanted to make a change. When I thought about the why was I wanted, I, I really wanted people from my community, my neighborhood, and you know, people like that were like my family to be treated right when they needed medical care. I didn't have a doctor much like you. Um, my parents didn't trust doctors anyways. And I, yeah. would, I, would, I would say the community that I grew up in didn't trust doctors either. Mm-hmm. I needed to do something that showed that their health and well-being mattered as well. I think that was another important part for me. I wanted to make sure that everyone felt important, both mentally and medically, and that their life is just as equally important as anyone else. Another driving factor for me is that I wanted kids that were like me to be able to see themselves in me, that they can do whatever they want to break the poverty cycle. I knew that this required, that this would require a high level position in society. So when I put all of my passions, visions together, and I would also say my academic strengths as well, I saw myself as a doctor, not only providing medical services, but creating trust in people from my community, reminding them that their well-being matters. And also at the same time, I was able to provide a vision to other youth if they wanted to be in a white coat, dang it, they can. (laughs) Uh I love it. Yeah, I think we do share a lot of those same reasons for going into the medical profession. And I love that, you know, we need more people who care about these issues as well in the medical field. This is why we're doing this podcast, right? Yeah. And can I just add something else, Dr. Marina, that you mentioned earlier is it's really important what Dr. Marina said, you will, you you need to convey um, your why clearly, very concise, and edit and like have other people look at it. Because sometimes you write something and you think, oh, I put my heart into it. It sounds perfect. Uh But when others read it, they're like, well, I don't know if that sounds perfect. (laughs) Yeah. And it's really, really important because this is like your chance for someone to get a little glimpse of who you are and why you're doing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so important too, because you have, you have to polish it as much as possible and make it as clear as possible. 
um, and as impactful as possible because people who are reading your personal statement are probably reading hundreds, Mm -hmm. if not thousands of applications (laughs) over the course of a few months. And so, you know, it really has to communicate your why effectively, but also succinctly, right? Mm -hmm. And it might not be perfect, but just do the best that you can. Don't just write a single draft, edit it once and submit it. That's less likely to be effective. And really the bottom line is that if you can't genuinely and effectively communicate your why about why you want to become a doctor, your application will not be as strong as it could be. You'll have to decide for yourself whether that means that you're not ready to apply this year, or if you simply need more help and practice with articulating your reasons in an essay format. If you need more help specifically with writing your personal statement for medical school or figuring out what to write about, how to write about it, listen to episode number 38 if you haven't already. It's all about writing a great personal statement, and we have a lot of specific tips in there. One more note about your why. Remember that what you write in your personal statement about why you want to become a doctor has to be consistent with the rest of your application. If you write, for example, about how your mom battled cancer and you want to help people through their battles with cancer, then you end up not showing any activities in your activity section that are related to helping cancer patients. That kind of raises a red flag. It's like, are you really saying the truth about your motivations or not really? And the same thing, like if you say that you're committed to serving the underserved and then none of your activities match that, that's a red flag. So make sure that whatever you write in that essay communicating your why is consistent with your overall activities and application. Okay, question number two. Have you had enough exposure to clinical medicine to show that you know what you're getting into? I'm going to be totally honest here. When I applied to medical school way back in 2004, I did not completely know what I was getting into. I had shadowed a couple of doctors, but I didn't personally know anyone who was in the field of medicine. So I kind of had a naive view of what being a doctor day in and day out would actually be like. What about you, Dr. Z? In retrospect, do you think you understood fully what you were getting into? Oh, not at all. Um, (laughs) Very similar to you. Um, I think my only experience was shadowing. Um, When I worked at a, I did work at a nonprofit clinic, but I was doing health outreach programs, but not in the clinical settings. Right. But I had some doctors there that would allow me to go shadow them. But the day in and day out, not at all. Like you really, you, I had no idea. (laughs) And that's, I mean, it worked out for us, right? Like for me, it worked out okay, because I ended up happy with my career and the same with you, Dr. Z. Mm -hmm. But I will warn you that there are some doctors out there that they don't know really what they're getting into because they haven't had enough experience. Some of them end up really unhappy and they end up leaving the fields of medicine altogether. And nobody wants that. Like nobody wants you to end up giving up a decade of your life and a lot of money to get trained in this profession that you're going to end up leaving. So ask yourself if you really have the experience to know that medicine is a good fit for you. You don't have to have thousands of hours, but you have to have enough to where you feel like, okay, I've seen enough doctors and patient interactions that I can say this seems like a good fit for me. Yeah. Many medical schools now require you to have shadowing experience in order to show that you've had some exposure to doctoring and that you know what you're getting into. Some medical schools recommend it, but don't actually require it. Even if it's not technically required, though, 
you will be a stronger applicant if you have some shadowing experience listed on your application. Now, it's debatable how much is enough. You'll find a lot of different opinions out there about the ideal number of shadowing hours, but I would say that about 40 to 50 hours is the best. If you don't have that, it doesn't mean you can't apply, but if you're early on in your pre-med journey, that's something that you should maybe be aiming for. And having mentored a lot of pre-meds too, I think it's best if you shadow a variety of different specialties, including at least one primary care specialty like family medicine, internal medicine, or pediatrics. If you have 40 hours of shadowing, but they're all with like a plastic surgeon, then it's completely acceptable, but your exposure simply won't be as broad. And so you'll have still a more naive view. Like you'll know what it's like to be a plastic surgeon, but you don't know what it's like to be a family medicine doctor or, you know, an obstetrician. So try to get a little bit of variety if you can. Um, And if you're already at the point of applying, you know, you might still be able to squeeze a little bit more in if you can. Yeah. And even if it's, even if it's like while you're applying and you're doing it during the application process, remember if you get an interview, you can talk about, well, currently yes, I'm, <laughs> and you can add it there. And so that way it gives a little bit more credibility too. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say like I did um, some interviews in the past and it was really helpful when you, you know, you have a scenario, you have a question and people bring in their personal experiences with patients you can really tell people apart like the ones that have had a lot of clinical experience and the ones who have not. So again, it can only strengthen you even if it's after the application. Now I want to mention also shadowing alone does not necessarily mean that you have enough exposure. Shadowing is actually a pretty passive activity. You're mostly just standing there observing what the doctor is doing. You might get a chance to ask a couple of questions, but you're not participating directly in caring for the patients. And so that's where other clinical activities really help you to shine. Here are some of the things I've seen students do in order to get direct, hands-on clinical experience, which is even better than shadowing in many ways. So I've seen students volunteer at a free clinic, volunteer with hospice patients, work as a phlebotomist, which is someone who draws blood like in a hospital setting or clinic setting, work as a medical assistant, work as a certified nurse assistant, or work as an assistant at a psychiatric facility. So there are lots of different options. And it really depends on your interest. Oh, I've also seen people work as like EMTs Mm -hmm. or paramedics, depending on like their past experience. So there are lots of ways to get experience directly with patients. And I would say that's really, really important because, again, it's like part of the bigger picture communicating to an admissions committee of do you really know what it's like to work with patients and to work in the medical field? So if you have those experiences, you're an even stronger applicant. Now, thinking back about my experiences, I got most of my clinical experience working at a free clinic as a patient advocate and as an interpreter during my senior co- uh, senior year of college and my gap year. And I got to actually be in the room with the patient and the doctor because I was helping to interpret and act as a patient advocate. And that was really helpful experience. What about you, Dr. Z? Do you remember what you did? 
Yeah, um, I did a couple of things, but before that, I just wanted to mention the other the other popular sure. one that I see a lot of pre-meds doing is working as a scribe as well. Uh, yes. That is a really popular one nowadays. So you basically are writing the note for the doctor. So there's a lot, so it's you understanding the thought process of a doctor as well, and you get to see what they're doing day in, day out. So that's also another good part-time job too. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. So as far as my ex- my clinical experience, so I did do toward, and this was towards the end of my undergrad, I volunteered at NIH. And so I got some experience there working a lot on cardiovascular health. And then since I did, uh, it, you know, my, my journey was different. I went back after undergrad to complete my pre-med requirements. Well, while I was doing that, I also worked at a, a community health center, which is where I did a lot of community health programs. So there I interacted with patients day in, day out, not as a doctor, but, you know, here and then I would. So that gave me also a lot of like experience. And I think a lot of credibility when I would go for my interviews, they would ask me a lot about it. And then while I was applying, I was um, a mental health counselor. So I was working with patients or clients every day with a psychiatrist as well. So I got a, I got a, you know, a variety of different perspectives on different types of medicine. Yeah, and that's amazing. There's no one right way to do it. Like there are a lot of different options, but you know, are you putting yourself in a position or have you put yourself enough in a position where you're interacting with patients and potentially with providers as well? And just getting a glimpse at like, you know, what are what are the patients' concerns? What are their perspectives? Mm-hmm. Like how can you be a more compassionate provider when you do become one? So it just gives you that exposure that's going to be really valuable when you're starting out in medical school. And I've seen students have anywhere from 10 hours to over a thousand hours with these experiences. Again, there's no magic number, but you have to ask yourself if your experience is enough to help you understand what it's like to work with people in a healthcare setting. So moving on to question number three. And this question is, have you shown that you are a caring and compassionate person by engaging in service activities? So this is where all the volunteerism and service comes in. The fact is that medicine is a service-oriented profession. If you become a doctor, you will be caring for and serving people a lot, basically all of the time. You will have to show compassion for complete strangers, even when they are irritable or angry. You will sacrifice years of your life in education and training in order to be able to serve people in a very unique way. I can guarantee that all medical schools are looking for applicants who genuinely care about other people, including people that are different from you. Now, there are a lot of different service activities that can look good, quote unquote, on an application. You might have volunteered through student groups, through community groups, through church groups, or just on your own. There's no one right way to volunteer. What matters is that you are showing a commitment to serving others. And I guess I would add to serving others who are not part of your family and friends. Like you do have to, you know, reach out to people (laughs) and show that you're committed to serving, you know, people who are not like you. There's no hard or fast rule about how many hours you need to serve or volunteer to apply to medical school. Many schools have a minimum requirement, however. For example, my local medical school's website says at least 36 hours over the past four years, but the most competitive applications have more than the minimum. 
I've seen students have anywhere from about 40 hours to over 400 or more. So it depends on, you know, what stage they are in their life. Like maybe they're a non-traditional applicant and they went to college years ago and they've been doing a lot of volunteer activities since then. So it really depends on your situation. It's hard to compare to another person. But the question is, like, have you shown a commitment to serving other people? And every situation is unique. If you've had to work to support yourself through school, then maybe you didn't have as much time to volunteer as a student who didn't have to work. If that was the case, it's helpful if you had experience that can count toward more than one requirement or more than one overall goal. For example, if you volunteered at a free clinic like I did, you were getting both the clinical exposure and you were getting volunteer hours at the same time. But you just have to make sure that when you describe the activities, you're describing both aspects of that experience. Or if you worked as a CNA, a certified nurse assistant or a medical assistant, in order to earn money, you were also getting clinical experience. And that's great. Again, just make sure that you describe it as more than just a job and you emphasize what you learned from working directly with patients in that role. Well, I'm curious, Dr. Z, what were some of your volunteer experiences in college that you ended up putting on your application? Yeah, I had a combination. So because I did depend on um, working, so that way I can buy things while I was in college, I did a mix, but I always tried to find those experiences with the part-time work that I did do. I worked with the high school students and elementary age students to tutor them. And then I also worked with uh, foster kids in doing health promotion events. Uh So I did that as well. And then volunteering wise, if uh, from what I remember, we would do fundraisers, uh, community cleanups, but I also did flying Samaritans in which I would go down to um, Tijuana and Tecate with uh, physicians and I would be able to participate in their procedures, but I was their interpreter. So I would speak, I would do all the interpretation for them. So I did that consistently, like once a month for about two years. Yeah, there's so many different ways to volunteer. I can't, we can't possibly list all of them, but just, Mm -hmm. you know, are you doing something in your community to like help other people is really the, the question. Are you showing that you're a compassionate person that cares about other people that you have, you know, a humanitarian drive in you? Mm-hmm. And that is really important, especially since, like I said, medicine is a service-oriented profession. So even if you have a perfect GPA and a perfect MCAT score, but you don't have, that you're not showing that on your application, that you're committed to service, you might not get in. It depends. Um, and each school will emphasize that a little bit more. I can't guarantee that every school is the same, but I can guarantee that every school looks at service and volunteerism to a strong degree. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other situations we mentioned having to work. Um, I've seen also students who are like a student athlete. And so a lot of their time is consumed with one particular activity. And it can be more difficult to find time to fit in those volunteer activities. Just remember, they're going to look at your application as a whole. You do have to have something, though, because it is important. But they're going to take into consideration all of the demands that were that you were under during school and um, just do your best to demonstrate that service component. All right, question number four. Have you demonstrated that you have what it takes to succeed academically in medical school? Now, a lot of people get hung up on GPA and MCAT when it comes to applying to medical school. They can feel like 
oh, my MCAT and GPA are not high enough. And that means that I have no chance of getting into medical school. And that's not necessarily true. On the opposite side of things, if you have an excellent GPA and MCAT, it's not a guarantee that you're going to get into medical school because you also (laughs) have to demonstrate all of these other things. So it's really a combination. It's a big picture. Now, I do want to say that the main reason medical schools care about GPA and MCAT, it's not because they care only about numbers. It's because they want to ensure that you will be successful in medical school. Medical school is hard. There are a lot of very advanced science classes that you will be taking, especially during the first two years. They are rapid pace classes. You have to be able to learn and regurgitate and process and understand a lot of information very quickly. And schools don't want to put students in a situation where they're going to get in, but then they're doomed to fail. Nobody wants that. So GPA and MCAT are currently the best metrics that schools have to gauge whether you're going to be successful at taking those classes, passing those tests, and then later on passing your board exams as well. Now, GPA and MCAT requirements do vary by school, which is why it's really important to do your research. For example, my local medical school has a minimum GPA requirement of 3.0 and a minimum MCAT requirement of 500. So if you have a 2.9 GPA or a 495 MCAT, please don't waste your money applying there because you simply won't get through the screening process. They'll take your money and they'll say, sorry, (laughs) you're not going to make it past phase one. And then when it comes to GPA, schools also look at your science versus your non-science GPA. This gets calculated automatically in the application system because you end up having to put in all of your classes. You took all of the grades into that system and it will automatically calculate those for you. So make sure to look at those minimum requirements as well, because maybe your overall GPA is a 3.2, but your science GPA is a 2.8 because those science classes do tend to be harder for many students. So just keep that in mind as well. Generally speaking, medical schools are going to care more about your science GPA because those science type classes are what you're going to be taking during medical school. And they want to make sure that you can succeed. If you have a lower GPA, especially less than about a 3.4, here are some extra things to consider. First of all, please don't despair. You might still be a competitive applicant. More and more medical school admissions committees have a holistic review process where they don't even see your GPA and MCAT scores. The admissions office looks at them only to screen your application to make sure that you meet the minimum requirements. But then the committee members who actually review your application as a whole, they might not see them in their review. So make sure that everything else on your application shines as much as it possibly can, because sometimes those numbers actually matter less than you think that they do. But again, every school is different. Some of these have a holistic review process. Some of them don't. But I think more and more schools are going in that direction. If you had a particularly challenging year or two of college, find a way to discuss this in your application. But please don't spend your entire personal essay explaining why you got a D in chemistry. That's not necessary. Um, Maybe add a paragraph about your academic challenges and how they contributed to your resilience or personal growth. Like turn it into a positive if you can at all. Depending on your situation, you might even use the optional disadvantaged essay to explain some of the challenges that affected your grades. For example, if you come from, you know, a difficult background, your parents didn't attend college, you were a first-generation college student, you came from a poor community, 
or you just had something in your personal life that affected your academic performance, you can write about that if you want in your disadvantaged essay. There are no like hard and fast rules about what you can put in there. It's pretty open to whatever you think might have been a disadvantage in your life. Okay, and then lastly, if you have a GPA below 3.0, it's generally not going to be a wise idea to apply just yet. Now, this does not mean you cannot become a doctor. Please don't interpret it that way. It just means that maybe you need more time. Consider taking additional courses through a master's program or a post-bac program in order to raise your GPA above the minimum threshold. Otherwise, you may end up spending a lot of your money and a lot of your time and end up disappointed. Um, And there are a lot of great post-bac programs out there. Dr. Z, you mentioned that you went back to complete your pre-med requirements. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us more about that. Yeah, I took a different course because I wasn't too sure while I was an undergrad. So I went to a community college to complete my pre-med requirements. And I mean, and just listening to everything you're saying, um, I am first generation and everything, but I think my graduating GPA was about like a 3.4, 3.5. But mm-hmm. when you, they calculated the science GPA, I think it was like a 3.8. So I think that's what helped you 3.8, 3.8, somewhere around there. Nice. But yet still, I didn't do great on my MCAT. I did where I was at least my friend who was already in medical school. She said, I think you could still apply. So that's why I applied. But I think a lot, like you said, they consider the whole, I think they're starting to consider more the whole person because I had so much experience and work and volunteer that showed my compassion and my commitment, I think, to Uh health and helping people that I think that's what got me the interviews the first time around. I applied like to 12 medical schools, as I said earlier, and I got interviewed at 11. That's a great I got waitlisted on all of them, though. I didn't get accepted. Uh Yeah. (laughs) Got waitlisted. But then I was offered a post-bac program that I could do that would guarantee me admission through UCSD. And that's what I did. So I didn't Mm -hmm. hear back from any of the schools to get fully accepted. But I accepted the post-bac program. And after doing that, it showed my strength, regardless of everything else, that I would be able to succeed in medical school. Yeah. So in your case, it was not a low GPA. I knew that. But Um, You know, there's not just one way to take classes. It's not like when you finish college, oh, that's all. And that's all that's going to contribute to your GPA. If you need to, if you're in a position where you need to up that GPA, then you can go back to community college, you can do a post-bac program, do a master's degree, like there are lots of ways to get more coursework under your belt in order to become more competitive. Yeah. And you know, Dr. Marina, I think like, if you're thinking about maybe doing a post-bac program, I felt like that was a good thing for me because Mm -hmm. I felt like it prepared me better for my first year of medical school and how fast everything came. So I I think it was a positive thing for me and it helped me succeed better. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard that from lots of people who have done post-bac programs. I think they all thought it was a very good experience. Mm -hmm. Now, you also mentioned the MCAT. So as for the MCAT, above a 500 is what you will need to be considered for admission at most medical schools. Some of them, if they're super competitive, it might be higher. But I would say that most have at least a 500 cutoff for the MCAT. If you've struggled to make it to a 500, though, don't despair. There are many students who have taken the MCAT a few times in order to get a competitive score. I think sometimes we just feel pressured to treat life like a race. You know, you compare yourself to everyone else around you. 
they're applying, they're getting in, they're getting the scores they want. And it's really hard not to compare yourself. But life is not a race, you know, medical school will still be there to apply to when you are ready. And your path might look very different from someone else's. So that MCAT, unfortunately, I wish there was an easy way to just like, you know, help you get that score that you need. Just know that a lot of students struggle with that. But don't give up. Just keep trying. Keep taking it until you get that score that you need. There's nothing that you can't, very little in life that you can't improve if you put the work into it. Dr. Z, I think you had mentioned that you you were a little bit hesitant to apply mm-hmm. to medical school because you were worried about your MCAT score. Can you remind us what, like, what went through your mind at the time? Yeah, um, I think at that point we used a different system, so the yeah, 500 didn't it's exist. It's a different scoring. But I think at that point, at that point, it was recommended to have an MCAT score of 30 to even apply like that was what was recommended. And I think I got like a 28 or something. And then after that, I said, Oh, forget it. I didn't do it. And, and you know, I just told myself I'm going to reapply. I'm just going to take the MCAT again. Uh-huh. So I was committed to that decision. But when I spoke to my friend who was, cur- she was currently in medical school at that time, and she went over like the GPA and my MCAT score and everything else. She said, no, I still think you have a shot. So go ahead and apply. And that's the only reason. It's just I needed somebody to tell me basically that I, I could still be considered. Yeah. So I do I do want to point out that, you know, that MCAT of 28 back in the day when we took it was equivalent to about a 506. So it was actually on the low on the lower end, but it was still over that threshold to apply to medical school. However, a lot of students get intimidated because they will look up the statistics for a certain school. So let's say I look up Harvard Medical School and our average MCAT is a 516. Well, I can see that score and then get really intimidated and think, oh, there's no way. I only have a 502. There's no way I'm ever going to get in because their average score is a 516. So the averages are different than the minimum requirement. So make sure that you look at the minimum threshold and not necessarily the average, because again, like your whole application is so much more than just that MCAT number. And as long as you meet that minimum threshold, if you have a strong application overall with lots of activities, lots of experience, lots of other factors that are in your favor, then, you know, you might be ready to apply. So don't let that MCAT score scare you away if you overall have a lot of other good qualifications. Moving on to question number five, have you participated in any research activities? So this can be a little bit of an intimidating question for some people because some people feel like they don't have enough research or they didn't really have the opportunities or it was hard to get into a lab, especially with COVID, it disrupted a lot of opportunities for students. But I should mention this question will only be important for schools that really place an emphasis on research. However, the reality is also that most admissions committees like to see at least one research experience on your list of activities to consider you a strong applicant. It helps to demonstrate intellectual curiosity, teamwork, and an understanding of the scientific process overall. After all, everything that you'll be learning about in medical school has been discovered thanks to research. I should mention, though, that there are many types of research that you can participate in and list on your application. You can do basic science research in a chemistry, cell biology, molecular biology, or immunology lab. 
You can do clinical research where you help to enroll patients in a trial for a new medication or new treatments. You can do social science research where you study the psychology of depression or the psychology of autism. You can do public health research where you study the effects of pollution on kids with asthma. There are like limitless opportunities for research, and it doesn't all have to be like in a boring chemistry or biology lab. There are lots of opportunities. The important thing is that you show that you have learned about the processes of scientific inquiry and scientific investigation. Make sure that you communicate what you learned through the research process in your activity description. So don't just talk about the technical aspects of what you did, because that can come off as just really boring, right? Reflect on what you learned about the world of research, about teamwork, about failure, about success, about yourself. So make sure that you're really delving into like everything that you got from that experience. Now, if you had the opportunity to complete a capstone project or an honors thesis or a poster or a publication, make sure to list that and reflect on that experience as well. And if you're planning to apply to a combined MD PhD program, you will have to show an extensive amount of research experience as well as some publications. But we're going to delve more into the nuances of the MD-PhD programs in a future episode. So today we're mostly talking about just applying to um, an MD or DO program in general. Okay, question number six. Do you have strong letters of recommendation? I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but please know that these letters of recommendation do matter. Make sure that you have letters from people who know you well and are willing to write you a strong letter. Back in my senior year, when I reached out to professors and supervisors to ask for letters, I specifically worded my email request this way, quote, would you be willing to write me a strong letter of recommendation for medical school? If the answer was yes, I was more confident that I would actually get a strong letter. Because you don't, one of the worst things that can happen is that they say yes, just to be polite. And then it's actually not a very good letter (laughs) because these committees are reviewing very good letters overall in general. So if they come across one that's like just lukewarm, it stands out and you don't want that because it might bring you down a little bit. The number of letters of uh, that's required by each school is different. So again, you have to do your homework because each school is different. In general, however, as a rule of thumb, you want to have at least two letters from science professors and one letter from a non-science professor That could be like a work supervisor, a research PI, or a volunteer supervisor. And it helps if your letter writers comment about your personal attributes in addition to academic qualifications. If they just write about, you know, how you got an A in their class and how you did really well on tests, that's not as strong as if they write about that plus like you know, you came in, you were a good listener, you helped other students and like all of these other things. So you can specifically ask them to do that in your request as well. Make sure to ask for these letters early. Ideally, they need at least one to two months to write the letter and get it submitted. If they're a really busy professor, it might take closer to two to three months. It really depends on their schedule because it does take time. I've been asked to write letters and it takes time. It can take yeah. like an hour or two to write a really good letter. So that's a big, a big thing to ask for them. And they have to make sure to set aside the time to do it. I remember, I think I got um, my letters from like two biology professors since I was a bio major and my sociology research mentor, who was also a doctor. 
And I remember being so intimidated. I hated asking my professors because I was worried that they were going to say no. Because, you know, like, oh, I was, this, you know, one student out of a class of a lot of students and it can be intimidating. But they actually both said yes and they were happy to do it. Do you remember that part of the process, Dr. Z? I did because you always feel bad asking someone to write something nice about you, right? But I, I struggled with physics and my professor saw how hard I tried. Uh huh. And I ended up, I ended up asking him, my physics professor, and um, he let me read it. And it was, I think, like his letter was really about my resilience to like try because he saw me cry. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then um, I asked my OCHEM professor as well. I worked really closely with him and I would help other students who had trouble too while we were in that class as well. So he, he actually said, let me know when you want me to write you a letter of recommendation. So that was oh, really that's nice. So nice. And then wow. I had a, I was working for a childhood obesity program and I worked with a pediatrician and then a registered dietitian. I asked both of them. And then the supervisor I had while I was a mental health counselor, those were my, my letter of recs. That's great. That's great. And some programs will allow you to submit a lot of letters. Yeah. And, I mean, that's great because then, you know, the admissions committee, if they allow you to submit more letters, they are able to really see more about you as a person mm-hmm. instead of just your, you know, just your grades. Yeah. That can be really helpful, especially if you struggled with grades. You know, the more letters you can get to like really promote you as a yeah. person, the you know, the better chances you have if the school allows more letters. Yeah. All right. So final question, question number seven, do you have the personal attributes that it takes to be a great doctor? You know, think about the people on these admissions committees, they're basically selecting the people that are going to be taking care of them when they're older. (laughs) So, you know, it can become very personal. It can be like, you know, asking yourself, if you're a, a member on this admissions committee, you're looking at this application. And you're not just asking yourself if this student is going to pass their board exams or pass their classes. They're asking themselves, is this the kind of person that I want to be my future doctor? And so it really is so much more than just grades and MCAT scores. So in general, aside from showing your commitment to science and your commitment to service, personal attributes that are positive need to be communicated through your application. Um, And they can come across from your personal statement, your activity descriptions, your secondary essays, your interviews, and your letters of recommendation. So it can be helpful to ask yourself if your application as a whole demonstrates that you have at least some of the following attributes. Humility, compassion, open-mindedness, critical thinking skills, good oral and written communication skills, good social skills, teamwork, resilience, maturity and valuing diversity. Many of these, by the way, are considered core competencies for entering medical schools by the American Association of Medical Colleges. So don't take them lightly. These really are important. If you review your application and many of these attributes are not coming across, then consider how you can either improve your experiences in order to develop more of these attributes or just improve the descriptions of your experiences in order to let those come across. Because you might have those, but sometimes just the way you write about things that you did may or may not communicate these. So don't take these lightly. These really are important attributes. People on these committees are thinking about who they want to be their future doctor. 
And so all of these qualities really are important. You can have a perfect GPA and a perfect MCAT score and still not get into medical school if these very important characteristics do not come across in your application. It has happened before. So don't, you know, consider yourself, even if you have high scores, don't think of these as unimportant. We know that this is a lot to consider. Remember, you don't have to have a perfect application to apply, but we do want you to have the best possible application that you can have before you spend a whole lot of time and a whole lot of money and a whole lot of tears potentially applying to medical school. And hopefully these questions have helped. Um, If you ask yourself all of these, honestly, you'll be able to decide for yourself, one, if you're ready to apply, and two, what you can do within your application to present yourself in the best way possible. And we're going to go ahead and put a summary of these questions and tips up on the resources tab of our website if you want to refer back to them. You can find that at futureminoritydoctor.com slash resources. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Peace and love, everyone.